You're listening to Notes from Norwich. Well, welcome to episode seven of Notes from Norwich. We are just talking about dogs and cats and whether or not they are devout or have demons in them. So uh, we're going to leave that all to one side and pick up with this normal day. Just a normal day. (laughs) Seventh episode of Notes from Norwich, where we're talking about chapters 12 and 13 and 14. Uh, That's the plan, at least. We'll see how far we get. I'm Chris. I'm one of the hosts, and I'm here with two other people who will introduce themselves right now. I'm JN. I'm another of the hosts. (laughs) And I'm Marjorie, and I'm another of the hosts. Welcome. So, uh... How how are how are you doing? You too? Good. Um, you know, I think we're. This is what week ten of quarantine for us, and um, you know, I was chatting at our parish staff meeting how people are starting to move from you know the stages of grief into acceptance and trying to imagine the future. Um, and I think that's that resonates with where I'm at right now. Hmm. Hmm. What about you guys? I'm quite happy with it. I'm I'm uh, I'm fine with it. Although there are people that I worry about who are who are having trouble with the uh, with the loneliness and the economic impact. Hmm. So my prayers are for them too. Personally, I, I've been okay with it since the beginning. I mean, you know, it's a, an introvert with a contemplative streak. There's part of it that's just fine, but then vocationally, you know, how to be a a priest and how to be a pastor to my congregation when I don't have any of these tools that I'm used to the sacraments and visiting people and, we're just being cautious, um, and it's impossible to know if we're being too cautious or not cautious enough. But definitely. So, how about this plenteous bleeding? <laughs> we're going to jump right into <laughs> chapter twelve. Uh, after this, as I watched, I saw the body plenteously bleeding, as could be expected from the scourging. So, what do we think of this? I've got to say, this is one of my favorite showings. Um, It is, uh, you know, people, one of my favorite books of the New Testament is Hebrews. And um, I don't know if you know the podcast, Two Feminists Annotate the Bible. Uh, But in their episode on Hebrews, they were talking about um, how one of the hosts was uncomfortable with all the blood language in Hebrews. Um, but I love that. Um, it is, uh, the epitome of life. And so to see Julian really meditating on Christ's blood in this chapter is very moving. Um, not to mention her writing is beautiful, I think, in this chapter. The, the way she describes it. The fair skin was split very deeply into the tender flesh by the harsh beating all over the dear body. 
So plenteously did the hot blood run out that one could see neither skin nor wound, but as it were, all blood. Just beautiful language. Well, I love it too. I think that her her use of this image, her, it's more than a use, actually. She just inhabits this blood. She sees the blood everywhere. It's all over the earth. It goes to hell. It goes to heaven. Um, this blood is is cleansing. Blood is a blood is a, an earthly thing. I mean, we have all of us, all creatures, all animals have something like blood in them, and it means life. And Christ's blood, the blood that poured out of Jesus, was for everybody. There's this hokey old song called "Were You Washed or Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb?" Yes, and I I looked it up uh, this morning thinking about this, and I remember the first time I heard this song or knew about it, I thought it was just awful i i thought it was just just wallowing in in a a, hor- a a horrible scene and now i'm i'm completely on the opposite side of that the idea that all this blood and and she she focuses so much and she stresses so much that how much of it there is it's never ending and it pours and pours and pours and then when you think it would fall down on the ground it it disappears and then it keeps pouring and pouring and pouring which is exactly how it's it's exactly how jesus is with us Mm. this pouring out and pouring out and pouring out and cleansing and being in us and with us until we're until we're ready for the kingdom and that is uh that's how Julian sees this, and and I, I just I just think it's wonderful. Um, a few weeks ago, we had the um, preparation for the Day of Atonement in Leviticus in our morning reading, and an earlier decades ago, me would have found that. Uh, that passage very disturbing too with all the blood oh you're going to take the blood and you're going to rub it here and then you're going to sprinkle it there and then you're going to sprinkle and then you're going to get this more blood from this other animal and you're going to do the same thing and it's going to go all over the mercy seat you just think how can you know how how can anybody want to do this but there's in our in our modern world we we have lost the understanding of what blood means and it's yes. it's to our disadvantage and and for me julian and hebrews brings us brings us right back to that so yes there's a, a paragraph a little bit later or a few lines where um I love how she she brings to be, together Christ's humanity and his divinity that um, there is no liquid that is made which pleases him so well to give us 
for just as it is most plentiful, so it is most precious, that by the virtue of his blessed Godhead, and the blood is of our own nature, and all beneficently flows over us by the virtue of his precious love. This is, like you said, this is, this is, the blood is something profoundly earthly, um, and its plenteousness comes out of his boundless divine love. Um, and I think maybe this is part of why I love this showing so much, is that this is a, this is a symbol that very vividly um, shows what our humanity, our, our lifeblood, joined to Christ's divine nature looks like. Definitely. I wonder if, so there's some portion of the world, some portion of people that I know at least, who are very squeamish about blood. They don't like to look at blood. They get nauseated by the sight of blood. I wonder if we were to go back 100 years or 200 years, would there be the same portion of people? Is that is that a phobia or or a, a squeamishness that is culturally conditioned? And it is is it a side effect of our kind of modern attempt to control and sanitize the uh, the reality of our bodies and their natural functions? I think it um, a large contributor to it is how removed we are from the meat we eat. You know, like mm-hmm. you, you buy meat at the grocery store and there's usually no blood involved. Yeah. Um, but before industrial meat packing, you wanted meat, you got to slaughter the animal and there is blood involved. Um, and I think that this is at least part of it, that the way we've, um, the way we've come to relate to our food, um, if we're meat eaters is very, very divorced from blood and blood as the life of the animal. Um, And so it's just, it's foreign to us at a certain level. Um, We just don't see it much. Hmm. I agree. I think that we have sanitized our life, our living conditions, our living situations so much that we are, we are divorced from that reality, the reality of blood. We're divorced from a lot of other realities too. We have removed ourselves from these, these biological truths. And we have a lot of little quirks and manners that, that, turn our turn our gaze away from them too and i i think that's to our disadvantage i th- i think that we lose something with that i think you know i think chris you're right 100 years ago i don't think people would have been so would have been so averse to this kind of language, this this sort of language about about blood and and the imagery from the passion and 
Christ's love for us being poured out. I think people tend to abstract things. I mean, the Eucharist is abstracted in people's minds. You know, the flesh and blood of Christ. Um, people like to like to think of it in in very abstract terms, and that that's just part of that's just part of our modern way. You know, I think uh, you were saying Christ pouring out in the passion um, made me realize how much I've abstracted that phrase. Like we sure. we talk about kenosis and this pouring out of the self, um, but so many of the times I use that word, that phrase, um, I think it's divorced from this image that Julian's drawing us back to this plenteous bleeding. Um, that there was a, a a literal pouring out involved um, that I am prone to kind of distancing myself from in the way that I, I talk about the passion, at least a lot of the time. Well, the side wound, Jan, that that we love to imagine and think about, that was that was everything that was yeah. a complete emptying. Yes. So she talks about um, the blood as descending into hell and flowing over all the earth and descending up into heaven. Um, which just, uh, I have in the margins, it sounds like an ocean, mm-hmm. just absolutely mm-hmm. pouring. Um, we, we see the, the power of this blood to burst the bonds. And it's, it's an interesting way for me to think about the harrowing of hell, that it is, uh, yeah. You know, most of the time when I think of the harrowing of hell, it's sort of in the iconographical sense of Christ down there yanking things up. But this is a, an image of the harrowing of hell that I, I enjoy um, kind of exploring that like this is the blood pouring in, into, in through the gates of hell and bursting the bonds. Yeah. Um, it's it's a different way for me to think about this truth. Yeah, same here. <clears throat> so it's a blood transfusion from the Lord keeping us all alive. Yes. Um, so there's something, and I'm I'm tr- trying to put together reasonable sounding intelligent sounding sentences, but I'm just not able to do it right now. But there's, so there's this connection between the blood as being sort of a physical representation of life force, the representation of Jesus specifically in his incarnation, because until he's incarnate, he has no blood. And then also a sacramental dimension in the fact that there's 
there's you know an a, an endless supply of wine in the chalice. I did a little experiment at my last parish where I gently but firmly insisted that whenever people talked about the Eucharistic elements, that they refer to it as the body and blood of Christ, not as the bread and wine, you know, yeah. like, yeah. So, oh, well, there's still that, that how are we distributing the, the extra bread that's on the altar? Are we going to reserve that? And I'd say the, the body of Christ, we will we'll put that in the, the tabernacle. Uh, you know, I wasn't a jerk about it, but every time it came up, I would kind of um, yeah. intentionally uh, recast the language. And I had someone say that it made them very uncomfortable, uh, which, I mean, gave us a, a great opportunity for a whole discussion about the real presence and sacramental theology and all that. That's the thing. It, I think it should make us uncomfortable. I, it, it shouldn't be, like the Eucharist shouldn't be a, an immediately comfortable thing. <laughs> um, it is an awesome thing. And um, I love that, like the, the prompting to shift the language, because it does remind us just how awesome this thing is. Um, and I mean awesome in the, like, it is awful. It is full of awe. Um, it's it is not tame, but it is good. You know, like to use that C.S. Lewis language. It's not tame, but it is good. And I think that might actually, you know, it might be a a blessing that comes out of our greater cultural discomfort with blood is a sort of recovery of just how shocking the mystery of Christ's blood is. Um, you know, it makes, it makes us uncomfortable and that may at first like make us back off from any engagement with talk of blood and, um, that imagery and that reality. Um, but we, ha it also gives us the opportunity to like, after our initial, backing away to come back and bring that um, historically contingent horror about blood into the Eucharist and have that turned into a renewed awe for what's going on. If we, if we were used to blood, then maybe it would be that much, maybe that journey towards understanding the awe of um, the awe of the Eucharist would be different. I don't know if it would be easier or harder, but I'm just thinking that this might be a blessing in disguise, our our discomfort with blood, um, that it might help us to understand or recover an understanding of just how uncomfortable. The, the reality of the Eucharist is. Hmm. It's funny that as, as worldly as we are right now, 
as secular as we are, as focused on worldly things, that this worldly thing, that, that flesh and blood would need to be abstracted for us so much. It, it's just, it's just, it's odd to me that that we're worldly, but yet we can't, we can't really look at things as they really are. We can't, we can't grasp onto something physical, but we, but we love worldly things. I don't, I don't know if I'm making sense or not, but it just seems like a contradiction in our, in our way of, of, in our way of looking at the world. It does, and I th- I think with the blood example, at least, it may be because of how tied blood is to death. And that is a deep-seated fear that I think a, an utterly worldly perspective has few to know resources to help us reckon with. And um, there's a mortician in California called Caitlin Doughty. Um, She runs this channel and um, she's utterly secular, um, but is very dedicated to sort of making us reckon with death um, because that is a, a fear, an unwilling, another area where we've sanitized things so many people get into adulthood without ever having seen a dead body. Um, so like one of her first books talked about how like there are just no dead bodies around anymore because we've worked so hard to hide the reality of death from ourselves. Right. Um, and so I, th- I wonder if, if this, the blood, this worldly thing, um, it's so uncomfortable for us because we can't separate it from that terror of death. Sure. I think that's right. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I love and that made me eventually settle into Christianity when I tried and rejected quite a few other religious traditions, um, is that I thought that, Christianity got the balance just right of being real, like honest about the reality of life, the good stuff as well as the Mm -hmm. bad stuff, but also was not hopeless about it. That I I tried other religions and felt as though somehow they either ignored or brushed under the carpet or and not just religions, but philosophies as well. Um, They either kind of brushed under the carpet some big part of the existential dilemma of human life, um, Hmm. Hmm. or they made room for it, but they didn't provide any kind of hope. So Hmm. one thing that I love about Christianity is that it says, yes, absolutely, there's, there's, an explanation for why there's so much awful stuff in the world and it's sin and it's corruptibility and it's 
side effect of, of our separation from God and all these other reasons that are kind of part of our uh, understanding of how the world is constructed, but there's always, you know, what we think of as the end of the story, death, is absolutely not the end of the story because there's a resurrection. And the implications of death are each met by the implications of the resurrection, and those are each boundless. So, um, you know, after trying lots of things, that's why I settled on Christianity. Also, I was brought into it by the Holy Spirit. You know, this isn't just me shopping and shopping around, but that's that's what I was uh, searching for, was something that could balance those two out. Um, and so I think if you decide for some reason that that you just can't make sense of the truth claims of Christianity, that the, the essential one that like there is a God who has demonstrated power by raising Christ from the dead, that if you reject all that, you're still left with the terror of death. You're just not, not left with the remedy for the terror of death. So you have all the scary stuff without any of the remedy. So what choice do you have when faced with like the yawning terror of eternal obliteration, but to do everything you can to deny it and sanitize it and push it away and wrap it in plastic and um, push it out of sight. So I think those two absolutely do go together. And part and parcel is is our um, distaste for blood. Now I think most most people today would associate blood with infectious disease, with unsanitary, unsafe, communicable uh, disease issues, uh, something to be avoided, something to be feared, not as something that is the the essence of life itself. Yeah. Hmm. One thing as we move forward, um, you know, Chris, you, I think it was the first episode, raised this image of the eternally bleeding Christ to my attention. Um, and this, the bit where she talks about the blood ascending into heaven just hits right on that for me. Um, but it ascends to the blessed body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And there it is within him bleeding and praying for us to the father. And it is, and shall be so long as it is needed. This eternal bleeding. Um, <laughs> there is, there is no shortage of blood in the chalice. Um, it's a uh, holding it in eternal perspective that, it, that this is a a moment outside time that yet pervades all of time um, helps helps bring things into clarity. Um, I think again in the mystery of the Eucharist. Um, understanding if I approach the chalice and I 
have this new or renewed sense that the blood in this chalice is the same blood that it is in heaven eternally bleeding for me. Um, it makes it that much more powerful. I think of uh, the the bright redness of fresh blood. I, th- I think it's beautiful as well. That may sound morbid, but I think it is um, yeah. pretty. Mm-hmm. Maybe not splattered all over the place, but, uh, um, you know, like if I wind up with a droplet of it on my finger, there's something um, compelling about it. Now all the listeners are going to think I'm very strange. Maybe I'll edit that out. <laughs> Come on. This whole episode is going to make them think we're strange. <laughs> yeah. But it is this blood that defeats the fiend in chapter 13. It is. With this, the fiend is overcome. So his passion is the overcoming of the fiend. Who's the fiend? Are we all clear on who the fiend is? I think so. I think we can assume that she's referring to Satan. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's safe. It, uh, he has the same malice that he had before the incarnation, but no matter how vigorously or how constantly he labors, he sees that all salvation souls escape him gloriously. The glorious escape uh, is just a, it's beautiful. Um, But so there's two things in here, this, and then a a line, a few things, a few uh, lines later on, Um, something curious in there. So the first line is, no matter how vigorously or how constantly the fiend labors, dot, dot, dot. And then later on, that is his sorrow, and most unpleasantly is he brought down, because all that God allows him to do brings us to joy and him to shame and woe and pain. So the assumption in this is that, first of all, that even though the passion has defeated the fiend, the fiend still is busy and is having some success, only not uh, permanent success, but is still managing to get something done. The fiend is not dead and, uh, you know, canceled forever. The fiend is still active. And the fiend is active and is doing stuff because God permits the fiend to. So this is kind of related to what we were talking about last week and the, mm-hmm. the idea that there is that everything that happens happens with the permission and under the oversight of God. So why on earth does God allow the fiend to keep on working? Wouldn't it be better if God were to just have, like if you're going to defeat the adversary, why not make it a, a complete defeat 
instead of letting the adversary continue to harass us? Well, there must be there must be a purpose in that harassment. There must be some benefit to us that the fiend is constantly at us every day, every week, trying to turn us away from God. Even though the fiend knows he can't finally win, he has to keep trying and trying and trying and using all his wiles and all his great brilliance. You know, there is no, there is no, no one on earth who has all the skills that the fiend has. And he has to keep trying and trying and working and working and working on us, even though he knows, and we should know, that he will not triumph in the end. A single word shall fell him, as it says in the hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He's doomed. He's, he's, his hands are tied, but they're not tied. So what a, you know, so what a thing that this horrible creature, this horrible, I don't want to even call him a creature, this horrible being, this horrible force is after us and at us all the time. And, and has some, and has power over us and can make us do things and, and lead us into, into evil ways. But yet he's not ultimately going to be able to triumph. We aren't going to end up in hell, which is what he wants. He doesn't, he doesn't want us to just falter here and there. He wants to, he wants to own us forever and he's not going to. So what is the benefit to us of this drama? for lack of a better word. This is a, a hastily thought out line of thinking for me. Um, but so I'm, I'm thinking about, is it Colossians where Paul says that his suffering is completing what was lacking in Christ's suffering? What, what, what book is that in? Is that Colossians? Anyway, somewhere he talks about his own sufferings as kind of, filling out Christ's sufferings. Um, and I, N.T. Wright, in his book, it was 2016, um, The Day the Revolution Began, he talks about atonement theology. Um, and towards the end, he addresses this kind of, um, this question of a, a once-for-all victory, and yet there is still this unfolding that Paul alludes to. Yes, that book. Marguerite's holding it up for the camera. She has it right on hand. <laughs> and you are correct. It is Colossians one twenty four. Wow! Look at us firing <laughs> on all cylinders. <laughs> um, but the idea, um, and I, I'm not going to do his argument justice. But the, what, part of my takeaway was that. Um, the way the revolution that Good Friday initiates gets played out is in our imitation of Christ. 
Um, it is a uh, a continual um, re-embodiment of the passion by his people. Um, and that is, it is, Christ defeated the fiend once for all on that day. And as that salvation works itself out in the world, we are called to defeat the fiend in little ways mm-hmm. um, ourselves. Um, that our, our participation in the passion um, continues to foil the fiend's uh, purposes as this salvation works itself out, as this revolution takes off. Um, so as far as, um, I don't know, language of why does God allow it? I, I, I don't know what to do with that language. But as far as what does it do for us, um, it is it is the field on which the the fiend's continual action, although eternally fr- futile, his continual action is the field on which we imitate Christ's passion. Um, that it's the final battle is won. The, the the fate of the war has been decided. Um and now um now we as the foot soldiers sort of um follow the lead of our king in continuing to work out this defeat of the fiend. Well, I think that's exactly the benefit of of this whole thing is the fact that we get to we get to imitate Christ and that is of that is of benefit to us and you know i think from a human point of view if you're you know if you're writing a script for a, a tv show or something like that you're going to you're going to ask this question well why make all this trouble if you can just you know if if somebody can just start out and and have it all right at the beginning and then, and then just let it be right. But the fact is that that our work on Earth, our work with our work with Jesus, and our work with each other, is of is of greater benefit than if we had just all started out perfect and sweet and saintly to begin with, and you know, walking around on streets of gold or whatever. That's how I, that's how I have to see it. I suppose it's possible that it is more punishment to the devil. If the devil's allowed to keep trying and failing than if the devil were to just be eliminated entirely. And I'm pulling that out of seeing on on page. Well, well, Later on in the in the chapter, when uh, the word "scorn" comes up over and over again, mm-hmm. it's "scorn" mm-hmm. is a really strong word. There's this mm-hmm. like mocking, dismissive, 
uh, I don't even know the right word for it, but it's, it's, um, it's totally discrediting the, the object of scorn. And so the, it's, it, it's like the, the Lord is eternally kicking sand in the fiend's face, which somehow seems even worse than if, like, mm-hmm. if God were to just eliminate the fiend entirely, I mean, where's the punishment in that, right? He's like a, I don't know, he's a creature utterly robbed of his ability to ultimately harm us, and he knows that. And he's still clawing at us. Um, and it's that continual frustration, I think, that, yeah, it's, it's, it's got to be torment for him, for the fiend, to know, that, to know that he is powerless, to still be trying because he is so full of malice, and to be continually foiled by Christ's body imitating the head. If, if I were in his position, that would drive me crazy <laughs> to know that to, to be dead set on a task that I know is futile, but that I can not help, but pursue like that, that would drive me insane. But well, the other side of that, Jayan, is that, oops, the other side of that is that we, However many times we fail, we know that we are ultimately going to triumph. Right. So that we have we have just the absolute flip side of yes. his story. <laughs> yes. No wonder Julian laughed. It's yes, funny. he does laugh. This is one of my favorite things in the Revelation. Because I laughed of this- mightily. Because of this sight, I laughed mightily, and that made them laugh that were about me, and their laughing was a delight to me. So I'm picturing her, you know, on her deathbed, all these people gathered around her, the curate still standing there holding this crucifix in front of her face. She's off in some reverie, and suddenly she bursts out laughing. It must have felt like a great relief to those who were in the room for her, because isn't that isn't that always the case when you are with someone who is in that boundary between life and death where they're unconscious a lot of the time, and you just wonder whether they're suffering? Mm-hmm. And they can't tell you. You can't really know. Yeah. So suddenly she laughs, and it must have been a great relief but they don't know exactly why she was laughing. Um, But it is her desire that all her fellow Christians could see and laugh with her. mm. Um, But Christ wasn't laughing. No. Why is that? Do we wonder? Is this deadly serious for Christ? Is he, is Christ so moved by love that even the suffering of the fiend brings him empathy and sorrow. Well, she says it's because of Christ's constancy that he's above the fray, I guess, so to speak. 
which actually makes sense to me. I don't think that I don't think that Christ is sympathetic toward Satan, toward the fiend at all. But he's he's enough beyond the reactions, you know, the 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 realizations and reactions that Julian would be having or that we're having right now that he wouldn't he wouldn't laugh. He would be constant in his expression. It's interesting that she would even mention that, but she does. She mentions a lot of things that throughout the uh, revelations that I, for one, kind of wonder why she didn't edit that out. You know, but she's, she just, she tells us everything. She tells us everything that, that happened and everything that she thought and everything that she saw. And so, and I'm grateful for that. It's, it's one of the things that makes me have 100% credibility toward Julian is that she is so bare mm-hmm. about her revelation and what she saw and what she thought and how she, how she felt about it and what she concluded from it. Yeah, I think for me, I don't necess- I don't read this as Christ having compassion on the devil, though independently of the revelations, I, I do think there's, um, I do at least entertain the idea of compassion on the devil. Um, but here, I think it's more of an impassibility that this, and it, it shows maybe, and check me if I'm off base, with this, but it seems that it might be showing that this is not um, God scorning the devil uh, is not some vindictive, punitive act. Um, this is just out of God's very nature of being constant love and having eternally won the victory that this scorn comes. That. Um, because the picture we see, because of her remarks about the constancy, the picture we see in Christ scorning the fiend, it's, it's not one of reveling in the scorning. This is just um, God's utterly constant love that has eternally defeated the devil, um, laying bare the utter futility of the fiend. So that's where I, I think that's where uh, remarks about Christ's impassibility through all this might come into play as far as helping us understand the scorning. She sees three things. Amusement, scorn, and seriousness. Or the other translation that I have, which is from the classics of Western spirituality, um, which is College and Walsh are the translators. They uh, managed to make it alliterative by saying sport and scorn and seriousness. Sport. Sport. Anything else on... 13 
I just noticed this um, this phrase that uh, might tie to what I just said about the impassibility. When I said he is scorned, I mean that God scorns him. That is to say, because he sees him now as he shall see him without end. The language of laying bare um, in the light of a, in the face of a constant light um, is what that seems to suggest to me. Well, that goes a little bit back to the God and the point thing where Mm. God is. God can just grasp everything all at once. God has it all at once. Yeah. Immediately without, without beginning, without end everything. So naturally he, he would, he would have known that the, that the fiend was going to be overcome. Mm -hmm. He would have known that everything, everything that happens, he would know. So he can be um, serious. He can be serious about things and away from them a bit. Yeah. Anything to say on chapter 14? Okay. I thank thee for thy labor and especially for thy youth. The church is always looking for young people with families. Exactly. <laughs> Hot commodity. <laughs> Even in the 14th century. Yeah. <laughs> but seriously, like what, what do you guys make of that sentence? Because I, I don't know how to connect it either to the chapter before or to the rest of the contents of this chapter. Is it a throwaway line? Oh, I don't think there are any throwaway lines. Yeah, I, that's my inclination too, but I don't I really don't know what to do with it. Well, one possible interpretation might be that Julian has given her life to God while she was still young enough to still have more life left to live as opposed mm-hmm. to waiting until the very end and 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 then deciding to make a big, you know, final confession and wipe all the sins from her soul, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I, it's, it's, it can, it is confusing. It, it confuses me quite a bit though, that, you know, what, what this actually might mean. Um, the other thing, is that she talks a lot in chapter 14 about rank mm-hmm. and how when God is um, sitting with, uh, with everyone in the kingdom, he's not taking a special seat, that sort of thing. And she talks about rank elsewhere in, in, the, in, this, in the revelations. And in chapter seven, she talked about it a lot, how, how, Anybody, nobody is particularly special. Nobody has a higher rank. People who are nothing are just as, just as prized and loved as people who were. And, and rank was an important feature of life, I think, in Julian's time. Yes. And so the fact that it doesn't 
really play a big part in God's eyes would have um, would have been remarkable to her and something that that would have, you know, that would have made it made her want to talk about that a bit. Um, If youth enters into that, if that's part of it, you know, because she hasn't attained a great age or anything like that, um, that that that's one explanation that I could live with. This this in impartiality, the to the last, even as to the first. Um, that's from Saint John Chrysostom's Paschal Homily, but mm-hmm. it I think applies that because mm-hmm. at at the towards the end of this chapter, she, what for I saw that whenever or at whatever time a man or woman is truly turned to God for one day's service and in order to fulfill His endless will that one shall enjoy all these three degrees of bliss. So, yeah. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. It, 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 this chapter is breaking down. Um, levels of rank priority deference within God's love. Um, So in the, the what we've been basing most of this on is the long text of the showings. There's also a shorter text, which Julian wrote much closer to the time of the revelations themselves. And then she reflected on them for decades and eventually came up with the long text, which is the one you find more often. So I've got the short text here and the bit about, this line at the beginning of chapter 14 comes in the short text at the very end of chapter eight. So it's tied in, in the short text to the end of this whole thing about uh, laughing and then looking at Jesus and seeing that Jesus isn't laughing, but is kind of eternally scorning and is serious. Mm. Um, and the translation that's in here, so it goes straight from, and I see serious seriousness that he is overcome by the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and by his death, which was accomplished in great earnest and with heavy labor. After this, our Lord said, I thank you for your service and your labor, and especially in your youth. In your youth, he says? In, in your youth, yeah. Okay. But it's okay. right after, so it. The tie yeah. together seems to be the end of chapter 13 in the long text, what you're looking at. This like, um, this mm-hmm. reflection that there's basically, so the, the fiend is constantly trying to and failing to gather souls, and they are eternally slipping out of the fiend's grasp by virtue of the passion, but also by virtue of various kinds of spiritual work like like the prayer that Julian started out with where she was saying I w- I'm praying for these wounds for these visions I, I want to have an awareness and that active desire to receive certain spiritual graces from God um, has in a sense finished the liberation from the hands of the devil that began with the passion. And now God is saying, you know, basically thank you for getting it. 
thank you for figuring out this project that I'm all about. And maybe thank you for doing it at, a, at an age where you're young enough that you can still like, you can dedicate a whole life to sharing this news. I mean, thanks be to God for anyone who, who kind of makes this awareness, but it's one thing to do it on your deathbed at, you know, the age of 90. It's another thing to do it at, how old is she? 30? 30. When she has these, 30. When she has these revelations. And then, you know, she can go on. 30 and a half. She can go on for decades as a spiritual director, as an anchoress, as a, a theologian. Um, so that that ties back to Colossians, right? The the filling, the filling, the completing what was lacking in Christ's suffering, the the continuing to work out mm-hmm. this defeat. Yep, huh. I would mm-hmm. think so. So that's Colossians one twenty four. Do you want me to? Yeah, that would be great. Read it just just to. So that our listeners don't have to pull the car over and <laughs> grab the Bible out of the back seat. Uh, which version? Let's see. I have too many to look at here. I'll edit this out. <laughs> Here's the NRSV, Colossians one twenty four. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Hmm. Yeah. Will you read that one more time, Chris? Yeah. I am now rejoicing. This is St. Paul. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Okay. Continuing to work out the defeat of the fiend. So maybe it's possible to look at the whole of the spiritual drama of the cross at like a fractal. You, you, so fractals are like the same geographic, geometric shape that can be repeated over and over again, no matter how big or small you scale it. So like the uh, sawtooth pattern on the edge of some leaves or something like that. Mm-hmm. And if you like scroll in and look at it in a microscope, you see exactly the same pattern of saw teeth mm-hmm. um, or some galaxies do that. Lots of things in nature mm-hmm. have this fractal pattern with the same pattern repeated over and over again at different scales. So if the sort of cosmic encounter that is the cross between life and whatever the opposite of life is, is repeated most apparently in the body of Jesus Christ on a particular day in 33 AD, depending on what the scholars say. Um, but then it's also repeated in every human life in, in Paul mm-hmm. completing mm-hmm. the suffering or the, the, the passion. And then really in any time that we have an inner struggle against temptation and evil and, mm-hmm. um, you know, even on a millisecond by millisecond basis, when I walk back upstairs, when we're done with this podcast, I will walk past a big box of cookies and I will have for just a moment a choice. 
you know, mm-hmm. I'll be presented by a choice. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that that's the same as Christ defeating the fiend on the cross. But it is participation in it. But it is participation in it. Right, right. And right. I think that can tie to, you know, if this fractal idea, and, and I love this image of like the the kind of continuing to zoom into a closer scale and seeing the same pattern. Um, if I think about it in relationship to the rest of chapter 14, where even if you come for just the last hour, you are granted the same bliss that like, whatever the scale you're operating at with um, embodying this passion, um, you're participating in the same passion. It's all the same pattern. Um, and I think that it, the fractal image might give us some more vocabulary or tools to think about why the reward isn't proportional to the effort. Yeah. 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 yeah I love the fractal image and I love that how Paul tied it and placed it in the church, because if, that image works anywhere. It works in the church and in, in, in God's church and Christ's church throughout time and, and space. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's wonderful. Absolutely. And that person at the last hour, their bit in the whole thing has the same weight as someone who, well, like Julian has toiled from her youth. Yeah, has toiled from her youth. There's hmm. something I'm putting in the the chat window now. Something called a Vishek fractal that looks like a cross. <laughs> I'm going to put it in the. Uh, oh wow! <laughs> I'm going to make that the uh, the cover image for this episode. I think. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Anyway. Perfect. It has applications, including as compact antennas, particularly in cell phones. So there you go. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Here's where, if I was still in college, I would go off on a whole meditation about how cell phone antennas are uh, technology for prayer or some nonsense like that. But you know what? That sounds like a good place to begin to wrap up this particular episode. We've gone a bit more than an hour. Any concluding thoughts on chapters 12, 13, and 14? I don't think so. I'm going to be meditating on this fractal image and on the blood. These, this, so two images that I want to spend some time with in the week ahead. Okay. Me too. All right. We'll pick up okay. next week, I guess, with chapter 15 and 16. I don't know. We'll figure it out between now and then. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, peace be with you. And also with you. And with your spirit. <laughs> <laughs> Not and and with thy spirit, no, no right one. I was speaking to both of you. Oh, 
Plural. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode to find out more about dame julian the revelations of divine love the order of julian of norwich or us check the show notes to this episode you can reach me chris arnold the producer of this series at apple tree pods on twitter or on facebook you can find the page apple tree podcasts that's all for now we'll talk to you soon May God bless you.